Matthew 16, starting in verse 1, and uh, hear God's word to you. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Let's pray together. Our Lord, uh, we come here this morning and confess that we need your truth in our life. Uh, We realize how much uh, the way error, lies, falsehood, how much these things affect our lives, our view of who you are, our relationship to you, and our relationships with one another, and our relationships with the world around us. And so we pray that you would guide us now into the richness of your truth as we commit our minds uh, to study your word. And uh, so grant us your spirit, um, that uh, you would lead us in, uh, in, in apply the truths of this passage in, into the life of our, our congregation, our community here, but also into each one of our individual lives. And uh, we thank you for your grace in our life. We thank you that you do teach us, that you've revealed yourself to us in the scriptures. And we commit our hearts and minds to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're going to be talking about the topic of false teaching and how important it is uh, as individuals and also as a church to guard our church, uh, that the th- um, to guard the things that we believe as a church, that we are believing the truth. And you see that that was one of the things Jesus is talking about in this passage. You see that there in verse 11 where Jesus says to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So Jesus is giving a warning to watch out as his disciples for false teaching. And of course, this warning you know, appears many places in the New Testament. Both Jesus says it in many places, and his, in, in the apostles as well in their writings also say that the church has to guard itself against false teaching. And you know, in our generation, this is, kind of, this is an important point, because the way that we think about spirituality, religion, is we think less in terms of what is true and more in terms of what works, right? So, you know, if you, you meet someone, the average person says, you know, this person, is their spirituality, it's working for them. 
right? I mean, they're having an encounter with the numinous, you know, it's helping their life, it's, you know, helping them deal with their anxiety. So why do we need to bother about whether what they believe is actually right or wrong? Why do we need to get into that? It's working for them. So, you know, let them do it. If it's good, if it's good, we care more about what works instead of what's true, right? But, you know, C.S. Lewis, in his book, God in the Dock, he's got a little place, actually just a couple lines in there, where he gives this illustration where he's talking about how important it is that the things that you believe about people and about the world are actually true. And that actually your intentions, good intentions, really aren't sufficient in the world. So he gives the example, you know, you imagine you're living on the edge of the Sahara Desert. Maybe I've used this illustration before. And this, someone comes out of the desert who's just starving. They haven't eaten in weeks. And, you know, their, their body is just thinned out and, and they're about to die. They need food. They need water. And you think, oh, man, this person's starving. Come on, come into my house. And you just serve them up this great big lasagna and steak dinner. And you think, you know, this person, they're going to be so happy when I just lay this food before them. And what you don't know is that if they eat that big meal, what is going to probably happen to them is they're probably going to die. And you were not helping them, actually. And actually, your good intentions weren't enough. You actually had to have true knowledge about the world about human beings, about food, and how things work. And in order to live well in the world, you have to have right beliefs. It's not enough that you just have some good intentions and that you're trying to be spiritual, but you have to have right beliefs about spiritual things. And um, for many people, though, this aspect of the church, the insistence on right beliefs, is a turnoff, right? Because, uh, you know, when churches become too dogmatic, uh, too certain of their doctrines. You know, if, if a church is finding false teaching everywhere, what, you know, what happens to the spirit of that church? You know, it loses its warmth, it loses its humility, it loses, you know, its sense of wonder, right? Because their sense of wonder comes from, you know, that I, you know, I'm like a child that has so many things to learn, and how can I say that I'm so certain about everything? When it's, we're talking about God, who I can spend endless ages thinking about and learning new things about. How can I be, you know, so certain about my doctrine and be overly dogmatic about who God is? And, you know, actually that's an important challenge for us because, you know, if you don't know, we're a Presbyterian church. And if you haven't been in a Presbyterian church, one of the things that Presbyterian, Presbyterians are really good at is being right and, uh, and, you know, having right beliefs and defending those beliefs. And yet the Bible does give warnings where, you know, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, he says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge can make you proud. It can make you lose your warmth and your, your humility. And so the question for us is, how do we, on the one hand, guard the truth? And we realize Jesus says you need to beware of false teaching and we need to uh, watch out for false teaching and keep away from it, root it out, and yet also keep that kind of childlike humility where we say, I always have new things to learn. There's always going to be wonders, that, new things that God's going to challenge me with, assumptions that I had that are always going to be challenged by God. How do I keep those two things together? Well, in the Gospel of John, in the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, John says that when Jesus came, he came full of truth and grace. That he came with both truth. He came with a challenge. He came with a hard word. And he also came with grace. He came with tenderness. He came with a soft word. Jesus, it's in him, somehow, these two things come together, of truth and grace. 
They come together in him. And so um, in this passage, as we read about Jesus interacting with false teaching, we, it, it, we learn some great insights about understanding false teaching the way Jesus understands it, and then understanding how do we then as a church resist false teaching. And we're going to look at four things in this passage this morning as we talk about the topic of false teaching. So, four things this morning, and the first is this. False teaching comes in opposite extremes. False teaching comes in opposite extremes, and which is to say that if you're going to have an error, you know, a belief error, you can fall off the horse either to the left or to the right. Okay, there's two ways that you can fall off the horse that are actually opposites. And, you know, you'll notice that in this passage, it begins and ends with talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. See that in the verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came... And to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And then down in verse 12, and they understood that he did not, uh, and, and then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, who, who are these people, Pharisees and Sadducees? Well, these were two different groups of the religious leadership in first century Judaism. And the Sadducees, they were kind of the upper class educated aristocracy that uh, in Judaism in the first century and uh, they, were, they were connected with the priesthood which meant that they were connected to the temple that was their primary symbol that, they, that represented them, the thing that they were connected, connected to and represented their power and their authority was the temple and the temple of course was built by Herod the Great and, uh, and so this uh, temple actually their power was somewhat associated to the power of the Roman Empire. And so they were kind of, even though they were critical of the Roman Empire, they were kind of this anti-revolutionary leadership. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were actually very different. They were more among the common people. They were loved by the common people. They, you know, they cared for the poor. They were uh, very well respected. And, um, and uh, they, the Pharisees, on the other hand, had a much more revolutionary spirit. They would be the ones that would be more likely to be zealots and say, you know, let's gather an army and let's take on the Romans. And as a result, their symbol, you know, the Sadducees' symbol is the temple. The symbol of the Pharisees was more the law. And they were really insistent on we need to keep God's law militantly because the law is the thing that distinguishes us from the world, that, that shows us that we're not those dirty pagans. We keep God's law and we're the, you know, we're the good, good religious people. We're God's chosen people. And so not only did they keep the law, they had all kinds of an oral tradition that was added to God's law and they tried to keep all of those as well. And so you see this distinction where the Sadducees have more connection, association with the world and the Pharisees are more separated from the world. And these two groups actually theologically were very different as well. You know, the Sadducees did not believe in the whole Old Testament. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. So they had a truncated Bible. There were parts of the Bible they didn't believe in. And they also didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh, they didn't believe in angels. And, uh, and so as a result, um, uh, and they also had a strong belief in free will. Pharisees, on the other hand, not only did they believe the whole Bible, but they believed in the oral tradition. They added on to the Bible. The Sadducees took away from the Bible. The Pharisees added to the Bible. These opposite errors. But the Pharisees, um, you know, believed in God's sovereignty. Um, they believed in the resurrection. They believed in the supernatural. And so what you can see is that these two groups are very different, and they actually hate each other. 
They're arguing with each other all the time. And for some reason, here they are grouped together in Jesus' teaching. And it seems that the only thing that they have in common is that they don't like Jesus. They want to prove Jesus wrong. That's where they come together. And so a rejection of Jesus can be a rejection in two different directions. You can reject Jesus by being too much like the world, or you can reject Jesus by, by separating too far from the world. You can reject Jesus by taking away from the Bible. You can reject Jesus by adding to the Bible. Both of these are ways of going to error in opposite directions. And of course, these opposite extremes are very present in our culture right now. They're very present in the, in the church right now. In you know, the, the conservative and liberal uh, cultural trends in our church that we can reject Jesus in a, in a conservative way where we can say, you know, the dirty world out there of all those pagans who don't believe in God, we want to isolate and, and make a Christian subculture where we're far away from them. And you know, not only are we going to obey what the Bible says, but we have all kinds of unwritten laws that we put on each other to show that we're the religious people and we're not like those unreligious people out there. Or we can have the more liberal option where we say, you know, we, we don't want to offend anyone. And so we're going we're gonna to be, we become just like the world around us. There's hardly any distinction. And so um, what the conservatives do is they're adding to the Bible and the liberals say, you know, those, part, those parts of the Bibles that are, that are offensive to people in our culture, we're going to throw those parts out. And what Jesus is doing is he's challenging both. False teaching comes in opposite extremes. You can fall off the horse in both directions. And let me just say, this is not doing that. <laughs> it's a big part of the vision of our church. I mean, that's one of the reasons that, you know, on Sunday mornings, what do we do? We just read right through books of the Bible. We don't skip anything. But, you know, part of the reason is because we're not going to have the teaching of our church based on the things that Nate wants to talk about and what are Nate's ideas or Daniel's ideas, it's not, that's not what our church is going to be based on. We're going to be based on what God's teaching us. But also, when we come to a hard word, a hard passage, things that are going to be you know, a tough pill to swallow, what are we going to do? We're going to face it. And we're going to read God's word with integrity and understand, I know that he's going to challenge me. I know God's going to th- say things I don't like. And we're going to face those things. And, but as long as we're staying close to the scriptures and staying close to Christ, we can know that we're not going away from either, uh, either extreme, opposite extremes of error. And you know, what happens when you do that? What happens when we say, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my mind, I'm going to give my heart to what God has said in, his, in the scriptures. I'm not going to take away from it. I'm not going to run away from things that scare me. And I'm not going to add to it either. I'm not going to be more religious than the Bible. What happens when we do that is we have this spirit of humility. We have a spirit of wonder. There's so much in here. And we say, God, teach me. And I know that these aren't the traditions of men. These aren't the the ideas of men. These are God's very ideas. And so that's how we keep that childlike humility and wonder at who God is, is by keeping God's scripture central. Okay? So the first thing we learn is that false teaching comes in opposite extremes. In our culture, that can be both in a conservative way or in a liberal way. But Jesus takes these two extremes and he groups them together. And he says, you know, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And you say, these groups are so different. But Jesus understands that they have something in common. What is it that these two groups have in common? And this is the second thing 
that I want to point out about false teaching is that false teaching, second, comes from a desire to be in control. We fall into error when we have a desire to be in control. And you see this here. Look at verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Now, what is this passage talking about? The scribes and the Pharisees say that they want from Jesus a sign. They want Jesus to prove who he is, to verify who he is with a sign. And Jesus answered and said, You're just, there are signs. You're just not even recognizing them. And of course, we've been reading about all those signs. Anyone who's been around knows that Jesus has been doing all kinds of signs. You know, he fed the 5,000 people. He's been healing the crippled and the lame. And whole crowds of people who aren't even from Israel, from you know, foreign lands are coming. And so Jesus is doing all kinds of signs. They, those just aren't the signs that they want to hear. They're not willing to, to hear those signs. And apparently the Pharisees and Sadducees want a voice from heaven or a crack of lightning that verifies this is the Messiah, this is my son, this Jesus is the one who is to come. And uh, Jesus says that he will not give that to them. And this is what it says, verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now what is... Uh, what is evil and adulterous about wanting a sign from Jesus? Why is that evil and adulterous? Well, I would say that the problem with this whole conversation is a problem of who is interrogating who. Who's being examined? Who's being questioned? The Pharisees and Sadducees want to be the ones in control. They want to be the ones asking the questions. They are asking, does Jesus meet their standard? And so that's one of the questions we have to ask is, what standard do we bring to Jesus and demand that he meets for us? What cultural standards do we bring to Jesus? And, uh, you know, there's a lot of answers to that. There's a lot of standards we can bring. Let me just offer one. One, as modern Western people, one of the main standards we bring to the Bible is our reason. We say that I will not believe anything, I will not believe in Jesus, unless he verifies who he is to my reason, and I logically can, he can prove to me who he is. And that's because we think that, you know, as, uh, you know, as modern people, that, um, we only believe things because of our logic. You know, that's what Descartes said. I think, therefore I am. That's the ground of all truth, is my personal logic. Now, of course, do we only believe things because of logic? No. There's all kinds of things that, you know, the vast majority of the things that we believe in, we don't believe in because they've been verified by our logic. We believe in them because an authority, a trusted authority, has told us to believe in them. I mean, all the things that you believe about science and about space and about nature, uh, you know, and about medicine, whatever it is, you weren't in a lab looking through a telescope, you know, doing the math problems. You didn't go through all that. Someone else did it and told you that this is what's true about the world, and you believe them. You trust authorities. That's why you believe certain things. And what Jesus is saying, what, why don't we trust Jesus as an authority? 
Do we trust Jesus' in authority? That's why we should trust him. And so the question is, okay, why are we bringing this standard off into the Bible that it has to meet my reason and my logic in, in order for me to embrace it? The reason we bring that standard is because it puts me in a position of control. I want to be the judge. I'm the judge in evaluating whether Jesus meets my standard. Will I accept him or won't I? And um, that's what, for many of us, we say Jesus needs to prove to me who he is before I will follow him. And so we demand signs, we demand proof on our own terms. And really, this is the center of false teaching. When I'm the judge, when I'm saying, uh, and this is really the question, is do we judge Jesus or does he judge us? Do we stand over the Bible and examine it, or does it stand over us and examine us? Do we decide whether he meets our standard, or do we decide whether we meet his standard? You know, C.S. Lewis in that same book, he was talking about how he had met someone who had said to him, the most important question that anyone can ask is, what do you make of Jesus Christ? And C.S. Lewis says, by heavens, no. The far more important question is, what does Jesus Christ make of me? That's a far more profound question, is I'm going to have to stand for him. And, and there's a whole reversal of the conversation that needs to happen. Now, as I say that, challenging whether reason, our reason, should be the ultimate standard that we evaluate things, some of you are going to say, well, what does that mean? We shouldn't be thinking Christians? Isn't that what Christians do? Is they're always throwing out the intellect that Christians are not thinking, they're just believing the Bible uncritically. They don't ask any questions. That's what religious people do. And that's what left us in the dark ages. And the enlightenment and science came when we broke out of that and we started asking questions and we started challenging things. And let me just say that, first of all, absolutely as a Christian, you need to think. I mean, to read the Bible, you need to think. And Jesus in this passage tells the Pharisees and Sadducees, you should be thinking, you should be reading the science in the times. You know how to read the weather. Can't you understand what's happening in the miracles that I'm doing? Can't you read the scriptures and interpret? You should have concluded that I am the one. But there are two different kinds, there are two different ways to do reason, to use reason. There is reasoning from above and reasoning from below. Reasoning from above says that I am the master and I collect the data and I make judgments on what is acceptable to me or not. That is the modern world. Reasoning from below says I'm not God, and God is teaching me things. There are tons of things that I don't know, and everything that God wants to teach me, I'm going to use all of my intellect, all of my mind, to understand them and reason through them and put them together so that I can behold the wonder of who God is. But it's a childlike humility of receiving and being taught and saying that God stands over me and he needs to teach me. He's the one who's all-knowing. I'm not the one who's all-knowing. He's the one who has all reason. I'm not the one who has all reason. And having a spirit of learning from him and saying, Jesus is the master, not me. It's when we have that, that spirit, that disposition, that's the biggest thing that guards us against false teaching. Okay? And I just want to say this. There is a tendency in both the conservative tendency and in the liberal tendency is a desire for control. We desire to control our culture, to desire to control people, and neither of these are the posture that Jesus is inviting us into. Okay? So there's, there's a real challenge that's coming here. So first of all, false teaching comes in opposite extremes. 
And false teaching comes from a desire to, to be in control. But the third thing we learn about false teaching in this passage is that false teaching always starts small and then grows. False teaching always starts small and then grows. It looks like something that's insignificant. Something you say, you know, it's not that big a deal. Why don't we just let it go? And, uh, but this is what Jesus says, verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then in verse 11. How is it that you fail... Uh, how is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, the image that Jesus chooses here to describe false teaching is leaven, which you know is primarily yeast that you put into a lump of dough, and the yeast you know eats the carbohydrates, and the yeast multiplies, and that little bit of leaven. Then what happens? It spreads to the whole lump. The whole lump becomes leaven just by a little bit. And and he says, this is what false teaching is like. If you let a little bit of it in, it will spread and it will destroy a whole community. And it will destroy people. And so you have to be on guard against it. You need to root it out. And um, Jesus says that we have to be vigilant to guard against even small amounts of false teaching infiltrating our community and our life. Just challenge, you know, I think most of us don't like conflict. And he's saying there's going to be conflict as we follow him. And there's actually, there's going to be conflict even about beliefs and about doctrines and about ideas because he's saying we need to guard, guard our teaching. Which says, you know, one practical application of that is for us as a community is as we elect Elders in our church, one of the things that elders do in our church is they guard the doctrine of the church. That's one of the things, and and pastors, and that's going to be one of your responsibilities over the life of our church is to elect elders and and pastors to, to shepherd you and to ask that question, are they willing to believe in the Bible? Are they willing to stand a stand for God's truth and to guard this church even when the Bible says hard things? Will they say hard things? Those are the kind of leaders that we need in the church. And you know, it's not just in the church. Let me just also say in the home, the Bible does give a particular priority for husbands and fathers. Now, listen, women, wives, do you have to have good doctrine and good teaching? Yes, you do, absolutely. But there is a special emphasis on the Bible that the men in homes need to guard the teaching that comes into their homes. Which means that if you're, if you're a husband, you're a father, or you're going to be a husband and father at some point, then you need to know what you believe. You need to know what the Bible teaches. You have to have convictions. You have to have principles. And when something comes up and you say, you know, I don't really know what I think about that. Don't say, well, not a big deal. Yes, big deal. You need to go find a book. You come talk to one of the pastors. You come talk to your home group leader. You come talk to one of the elders. Talk to someone here and say, you know, I don't understand this. You start digging in the scriptures. What, what do the scriptures say about this? And you need to say, I need to have a conviction about this. And so that's, uh, that's part of the calling for us is that we need to um, understand that even a little bit of false teaching can grow and can destroy. And this is a warning that Jesus gives to us. Now, this raises a question, though. Even a little bit of false teaching needs to be rooted out of the church? I mean, 
what are we going to start doing? Like, rooting out all the false, you know, is we going to go on a witch hunt? We're going to find out everyone who's got a little bit of error, and we're going to try to get a church where everyone believes exactly the same things. There's going to be no diversity. We're just going to have uniform, you know, everyone living in fear if they even voice their doubts that they might say something that goes against the Bible. You know, what's going to happen if we're just rooting out false teaching all the time? Now, this is an important question. And the answer, of course, is no. That's not the spirit uh, that Jesus is endorsing here. And actually, for those of you who are going to come to our, uh, our membership class, Christ Church 101, one of the things that we talk about in our church is that we believe that there are three different kinds of doctrines, three levels of doctrines that the Bible teaches us. There are certain core beliefs that are essential that you have to believe in even if you're going to be a Christian. All Christians believe this. This is things like God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God and three persons. Uh, That Jesus was fully God and fully man. Jesus died on the cross for our sins and his body was raised from the dead and Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father now and is coming again uh, to set all things right in the world. These are basic beliefs that all Christians believe. If you don't believe those things, then actually you're not even a Christian. But those are a few basic things. But then there are, uh, there's a second level of beliefs that we would call biblical commitments. These are things that not all Christians believe, but we would say the Bible teaches, says quite a lot about. And so we would say if you were going to be an elder or deacon in our church, you would have to believe in these things. For example, something that in our church is the sovereignty of God. That God is um, purposes in history can never be thwarted. He is all-powerful, and has all authority and control over whatsoever happens to pass in human history. Deep mystery, but the scriptures say it everywhere. And so, in order for us to be faithful to the scriptures, we need to believe those things. Now, there's going to be people in our church who may not believe that. You could still be a Christian and not believe that. But as a church, our teachers are going to believe that. But then there's a third level of doctrines where there are doctrines where even elders and pastors are going to have different opinions about. You know, a couple of things that we as a church put in that category. One is the age of the earth. There's, uh, we understand the Bible doesn't say a lot about that. It just doesn't give us a lot of information. And there are pastors in our denomination that have different opinions about that. And so we say, we understand the Bible didn't give us a lot of information. Did God make the earth? Yes. Did he make all the animals? Yes. Uh, but how did he do it? We're not, we're not totally sure. Or when is Jesus going to come back? You know, what, are things, what things are going to happen before he comes back? It's kind of obscure as you read that in the scriptures. Lots of faithful people have really studied hard to read the Bible, have come up with different answers. And so there's going to be, uh, you know, we understand that people are going to have different opinions on that. So, but one of the things that, that's helpful, as you move closer to the center, those central doctrines, we become insistent and say, we cannot be moving away from these central doctrines. Now, how do we determine, though, what goes in the center? What's the real heart of the, fall, you know, the thing that we needed to be guarding against? And this is the last thing that we learn about false teaching in this passage, is that not only false teaching comes in opposite extremes, false teaching comes from a desire to control, and false teaching starts small, seems very subtle, but can actually grow and destroy a whole community. But the, the fourth thing is this, is that false teaching is resisted by the gospel. The gospel, which is the announcement about who Jesus is and what he did when he came, 
that Jesus is God become a man, died for our sins, that centerpiece is the thing that we are immovable on. That is the thing that guards us against false teaching and all goodness and truth pours out of that truth. And you'll notice um, that in both these paragraphs, Jesus' emphasis, the thing that he points out is exactly that truth. Um, So first, when the Pharisees and Sadducees say that they want a sign, what does Jesus answer there? Verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And if you don't know what the sign of Jonah is, Jonah he was a prophet in the Old Testament. He was eaten by a fish. And he was in the fish three days and three nights. And then the fish threw him up and he was alive. And then he went to Nineveh, which is these foreigners, and he told them to repent and turn to God. And then God forgave all their sins and embraced them. And Jesus says, that's essentially what I'm doing. I'm going to die and I'm going to be in the belly of the earth instead of the belly of a fish. And then I'm going to come back on the third day. And then I'm going to go announce for the kingdom. And my disciples are going to go invite all the foreign people to repent and turn to God and have their sins forgiven. And he says, that's essentially what I'm doing is the gospel. The sign of Jonah is the gospel. And so he says, the only thing I'm going to give you, the thing I'm going to challenge the, Sadducees, the Pharisees and Sadducees with is the gospel. He says, this is the only sign you get. And then in the next paragraph, this is a little more obscure. Watch this really quick. <laughs> in verse 6, it says, when the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? And then he, he asked this, this question, Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? which was 12, by the way. It was 12 baskets. And then he says, or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered, which was seven that time, seven baskets. Actually, this week, I was talking to this retired pastor who had asked me, so what are you preaching on this week, you know, young guy? And uh, I said, well, I'm in, you know, I'm in Matthew, uh, Matthew 16. And he's like, don't forget to do the math in that problem. And I was like, what? Do what math? And he's talking about this, these numbers. And he said, you know, look at how many baskets there were. Look at how many people. And so he was actually writing it out for me. And he said, you know, there's five loaves, a little bit of loaves, and 5,000 people, a lot of people. And you would expect there's not going to be a lot of leftovers. A little bit of bread, a lot of people, little leftovers. Uh-uh. There was 12 baskets. When there was more bread and less people, there were smaller leftovers. And he said, the math tells you that it's all about Jesus, you know? And I'm thinking, uh, and I'm thinking he's right. What Jesus is saying by asking his questions is that go do the math. It turns out I am the Lord and creator of everything. And you shouldn't have this cynicism that the, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees has. You should have a joy and a hope and a wonder. He says, you have little faith. You should be amazed at the things that I can do in my power. You should be centered on me. And the way that he is challenging false teaching is in the way that we challenge false teaching is through a robust vision of who Christ is, all of who he is in our lives and in the world, in the scriptures and throughout history, a robust vision of who he is. And when we get Jesus right, we get all the other pieces right. And it's not automatic that we'll get Jesus right. But when we get him right, we get all the other pieces right. And when you get him right, truth and grace come together and they kiss each other so beautifully. 
Because look at the cross. What happens on the cross? You look at the cross, and the cross says that Jesus died for our sins, which says what we deserve for our sin is what happened to Jesus. I mean, that is an incredibly challenging word, that your sins are so offensive that you should be nailed to a cross. We say, oh man, challenge, truth, hard word. And yet the cross also says that God has given an open offer to have all your sins for your whole life forgiven and washed away and to be embraced by you. You're like soft word, like grace, tenderness. And yet they're happening at the same time. Truth and grace coming together. They come together in Christ. And so how do we guard against false teaching and yet maintain an atmosphere of grace? We get Jesus right. Jesus is the center of all knowledge and let us never stop giving our minds to him. Let's pray together. Our Lord, thank you uh, for these words and uh, passages that we would just maybe read over quickly. And yet when we pause and slow down, we see um, how much truth there is in there. Uh, May these truths, these challenging words from our Lord... Um, guide us as a church and would you send your spirit to guard the gospel that has been entrusted to us would you give us courage to stand for what is true also give us tenderness and grace would we remember how forgiving and patient you've been with us so that many people would come into our church and they could ask their questions and, and that we would bring one another along And uh, so, Lord, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us, um, that we can study your word with an open heart, a trusting heart, knowing that these words are not lies, these words are not deception, but these words are, are light and hope and truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.